Namotasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Samputasa Namotasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Samputasa Namotasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Samputasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. So first of all, uh, I want to say I'm very joyful to be here at the opening of this little centre in Ghent. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, really joyful that uh, uh, Linda has uh, achieved her dream, for heaven's sake. Uh, wonderful thing to set out an intention and then find yourself actually living it. So many congratulations. And uh, <clears throat> really I just want to uh, uh, just remind people and, uh, and inform people who, who don't know about the Buddha's teaching uh, just how important it is to have a little centre like these in the city. Um, <clears throat> when the Buddha set up his, his order, uh, it tended to be a time of uh, really you know, tremendous enthusiasm. Uh, it is said that for the first 20 years, he didn't have to make any rules. Everybody who joined was committed and, and kept to the general customs of the monastic life. And then after that, it began to corrupt a bit and he had to make rules and regulations. And we've ended up with 227 of them. So it's, well, that's only the beginning, frankly. There's all sorts of rules and regulations. And of course, that does what your rules and regulations do is they establish your institution. Right? Sure. Uh, if also necessary, if Engels will understand, Brahma, then can Yeah. <coughs> yes. Um, so that your your institution is is basically what your rules and regulations are, you know, your, like the way a country's ruled, its institutions define uh, the government, define your country, don't they? And um, what happened eventually, just as a long sweep of Buddhism, is that of course the monastics began to be, um, create these big university monasteries and monasteries that were stuck out into the into the um, forests and the jungles and there was a slow whether they liked it or not there, there was some sort of disconnect because sometime or other there was this movement that we know as Mahayana which really began to put the accent not so much on seeking your own liberation but also on compassion so <clears throat> although for instance uh, my little place is out in the country one of its drawbacks is that it doesn't, it's very, it, I can't see it unless something happens. It forming a sense of community around people who do similar things. Because everybody who comes to me then sort of disappears back to where they live, which is basically all over the place. Whereas when you have a centre in the city, what it does is it creates a little focal point and there's a, uh, a chance of some community forming around it. And the importance of community is right there, Sangha. You see, it's the third refuge. So when 
during the during the year he would um, encourage the Buddha would encourage his monks and nuns to to live quite isolatedly go find a foot of a tree or build a little hut somewhere and to carry on by themselves but when the rainy season came he would urge them all to come and live together one of the reasons that they gave was that uh, they shouldn't be trampling around killing little beasts during the rainy season walking around uh, but that seems to me a sort of excuse the fact is that he saw <laughs> he saw the the importance of actually people living together of actually being in communion and uh, we need other people because other if you don't if you don't have other people you, you're not being uh, there's a danger of you living in, in your own little in your own little world and when we live in our own little world we don't see we don't see where we're going wrong yeah you need you need other people in a sense to correct your behavior and to be a to to to, to correspond with yeah to sort of resonate with and so uh, <clears throat> this morning we mentioned this this eightfold path you see so the first one is this right understanding so that's the importance really of meditation and what a place like this does it, it does uh, encourage you to come every week to just make the effort to come to a place to sit and meditate together uh, just in my own development uh, looking back now I was extraordinarily fortunate because in Britain in the late 70s uh, there were very few monks just a handful of monks really dependent on the ethnic group so there'd be a Thai monk for the Thai community etc but um, in Birmingham in the centre of Britain there, centre of England um, there was a, a Burmese monk came to live there there wasn't a particularly large Burmese um, community at all in fact it's never been very large but he came to live there and it's a bit of a, a funny story because what happened was the Tibetans were established up the road the Tibetan group and they had asked the Karmapa the old Karmapa the one who died about 20 years ago I think um, to send a monk and he sent Dr. Evatadama, you see, who was a, who was a Theravada monk. <laughs> and they all very disappointed. And what happened was that there was this big house, and eventually uh, Revatadama had the top floor, and the new Tibetan monk came and had the bottom floor. And uh, what it allowed uh, people to do was to come every week, to do their meditation, uh, to meet, and, and to take it with them back home. Now, just that I found that just the effort of one evening of a week of having to make my way across town and sit with people and, and came back was like a little boost of energy and I would continue throughout the week until the next boost if I missed a couple of weeks my practice would go down so I really made a big effort to make sure that I got there just every week the other benefit that I found at that time was that because uh, uh, after a few years, two or three years, he was able to move to a different place, so it became a sort of Theravada center. So I began going there uh, also to do uh, day retreats, and I ended up with the habit of going there once a month to do two days. That was a resident thing, you could stay there. And that again was a sort of boost, you see. So that's what we need. We need to have community, we need to have a place where you can give, keep giving yourself little kickstarts yeah? and by, go, by coming here just of an evening it gives you a kickstart for the next week and if you did a day retreat here once a month or so that would be a little boost you see 
and then once a year to try and get a, a decent week in, you see, then you complete the cycle, you see. And the, the process of, um, of spiritual growth is, is just very slow, you know, it's not, it's not a sort of, for, for the vast majority of people, it's a slow process, you know, the Buddha actually warns us, it's gradual, you know, that's his word, gradual. So very few people, you know, have this cataclysmic insight and are suddenly boomeranged into, into the higher realms of the spiritual life. <laughs> Most of us, it's just an uphill slog. Yeah, just, just, just one foot after the other, up and down. And it, it would be all right if it was directly up, but it isn't, is it? It's up and then down and then up and then down, and then down and down, and then up and up. And it's sort of, but eventually over a period, uh, you can see that there's been, you know, some change, some progress, you see. You know, say 25 years. <laughs> and you look back and think, oh, I have changed, you see. But if you look back over a week or a year, you think, well, nothing's happening, see. So it's a case of taking a very long-term view of the spiritual practice. Now, um, the, the core scripture, the, the, the jewel of the collection, as it's known as, is the Satipatthana Discourse. And it's a discourse on how to establish this awareness, this awareness that leads to liberation, yeah? leads to knowledge and insight. And who does he deliver that? core discourse to. Yeah? Now you'd think, well, he delivered it to his order, to the monks and what. He didn't. He delivered it to the ordinary people of Kurusadhamma. And the Kurus in a special town called Kurusadhamma lived uh, approximately where you get modern Delhi. And he'd been up there teaching, teaching them, and they'd been sort of very interested. And when he went back to visit them, he was surprised to find that they were actually following his teaching. See? I mean, I found this when I first began to uh, to, uh, you know, to teach, uh, I would give these instructions, but hardly anybody really followed them, you see. And I used to get irritated, you see, just in myself, I didn't show it, of course. And I say, you know, why did you follow? So, and then, and then I found out, well, people aren't going to follow your instructions, you see. So now I rejoice when somebody actually follows my instructions, see. <laughs> so I never get irritated. I say, oh, finally, somebody's doing it. So, so, <laughs> So you see, he got back there to Kurusadam and he found all these people actually practicing this moment-to-moment mindfulness. And he said there are things like there was no well talk. So in those days, of course, you'd go to the well and you'd have a gossip. But they weren't doing that. They were actually following his instructions. And it was there that he gave this talk about how to establish uh, a specific type of mindfulness that led to liberation. So... um, this shows us two things. First of all, that he really took uh, practicing lay people seriously. It wasn't as though he was just connected to his monks and nuns. And secondly, most important, he had no doubt that lay people could, be ju- could become just as enlightened as monks if only they gave themselves to the practice. Yeah? So, uh, as a lay person, your, uh, your job is to bring the Dharma into everything you're doing. Right? Now, in the standing meditation there, I pointed out to you that the seeing of an intention is the point of change. Right? If, you, if we don't see an intention, then we'll just do it in a thoughtless way. Uh, recently, I read this report, I think it was about a year ago, that um, uh, psychologists had found that decisions are made before you're aware of them. Have you, have you, did, you, did you see that report? Where they they've shown that in the brain, in the you know in the in these um, 
uh, I can't remember what they're called anyway. <laughs> eh? In the circuit, they show that actually a decision's been made, and then the person becomes aware, uh, be, uh, does it, and then thinks that they've actually made the decision, but the decision was actually made before they became aware of it. Unconscious mind? Yeah, in the unconscious mind, right? Now, that is a simple, pure, wonderful example of the unaware life. That is the deluded life, where you think you're making the decisions, but actually you're being an automaton. You're actually running according to past habits. See? Now, the whole point is that as you become aware of those intentions, right, then, you, then they, don't, they don't get empowered. You see the intention coming up, like we did, intending to sit. If you're there still, you see, with that awareness, and you see that intention to sit coming up, there's a moment there where you can say, well, should I be sitting or should I, should I be walking or should, <laughs> or should I be doing something else? See, that's how you take control of your life. How many times has, how many times has suddenly you've said to yourself, oh, I'll have a cup of coffee, and you're just making a cup of coffee. You don't even think about it. It's just done. Huh? And then while you're drinking your coffee, um, your mind's running all over the place and you finish your cup of coffee and you think, hold on, did I have that cup of coffee or did I not have that cup of coffee? <laughs> Completely lost. No, 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 no memory of it at all. And you think, well, I'll have another one. Because <laughs> you didn't enjoy that coffee at all. You meant to enjoy it, but your mind was somewhere else. So this is the unaware life. I mean, that's what we're trying not to do. And <clears throat> just observing that intention uh, re-empowers us. This is the point. In the core of his teaching, uh, he teaches this dependence origination. Okay, a dependence origination, uh, you know, without going into it too in too much detail, is the psychology of either delusion or liberation. And there's a point in the process of mentation, in the process of how we we think and do things, where feeling arises, right? Which, call, which always comes with an intention. A feeling comes with an intention. Hmm? Uh, sorry, uh, a feeling arises which is either pleasant or unpleasant. Could be called, can, be, can be caused by anything. So it might be that just at this time of day, I always have coffee, so this unpleasant feeling comes up and it has to be assuaged. Right? It, has to be, it, it has to be answered, and the answer is coffee. So with that, with that unpleasant feeling, there comes this intention, coffee. Right? Now that, that intention is coming from past habit of always drinking coffee at four o'clock in the afternoon. Is it four o'clock now? And go, <laughs> see, at four o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> Not yet. No, it's near enough. Okay, it's, it's, it's getting close, okay. <laughs> Relax. So this intention for coffee comes up, you see. Now, normally speaking, there's an immediate identification with it. I want coffee. The I comes in at that point. And once the I comes in, it's impossible to stop the next moment of willing. See? So it's coffee, right? Feeling coffee. Want, I, get. That's how it goes. Now, in our language, we say, I want coffee. But it's not. It's coffee, want, I. That's the process. And because it's coffee, want, I, you can stop it at the want. And you don't have to identify with it. See? And in not identifying with it means you don't collapse into, you don't become the desire. And that moment gives you a moment to say to yourself, well, should I, should I not? And if you say no and it's a strong desire, then you have to sort of stay with it, right, and wait for this pain, this suffering 
to, to, to give way. You see, you get this tremendous urge for coffee, you just have to wait. And as it passes away, what's actually disappearing, what's actually being undermined is the force of that habit. See? So the next time that intention comes up for coffee, it's not so great. It's not so, it's not so grasping. See? And eventually it'll die out. Now, if we did that as a constant throughout our lives, every time we saw, first of all, to be awake, to see an intention. Secondly, to have the patience when, it's, when we see there's an unwholesome intention to die away, you see. Very quickly, you, you change your habits. Okay? And, every, and, if, and of course, in the opposite, every time you see an intention which becomes wholesome, and there's this negativity saying, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. But you actually do it, you see, then you're producing a habit which is taking you into wholesomeness. That's all. Now, that, that, is, that is practicing daily life in a very simple way. See? Now, what we do is the coffee comes up, you see, and you say, no, no, and you suffer and you suffer and you suffer, and then it finally gives away. And you think, great, I gave up coffee, you see. And then you're a bit, you're a bit anxious, you're a bit depressed, you see. Coffee comes up, boop, you have coffee. See? So the next minute, so one minute we're letting go, and the next minute we're finding it again. And that's why it takes so long to become liberated. See? <laughs> but if we, if we were actually fierce in our intention and never gave way, then we'd very quickly change ourselves. See? It's to, and it's to, and that's, that's, the, that's the core practice. And that's the core practice. It doesn't matter whether you're a lay person or a, or a monastic. It's, that's the core practice, right? As right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So take livelihood, for instance. Uh, whatever your livelihood is, you see, unless it's obviously uh, immoral, you know, I, I don't know, uh, arms and uh, trafficking humans, right? That's pretty immoral. So <laughs> if you're not doing that, you're all right. So most people have jobs which are in themselves wholesome. What turns it into a spiritual practice is your attitude to the job. If you see yourself doing work which is a service to others, that's an immediate act of generosity. See? Whether you want to or not is immaterial. Right? It's the fact that you've, you've now intended your work to be a service to others and of course you include yourself, others and yourself, but, but mainly your, atten your, your intention is to be of service to others in whatever way you can. Immediately, you see, whether, uh, whether you like it or not, you're developing a beautiful attitude. And at first, it may, you may be still stuck with the effects of an old attitude, of being grumpy, of not wanting to do the work, of hating this and hating that, you see. But as those die away, that sense of service begins to resonate in the heart, and that's where you get your joy. And then, then, your, then your life work becomes a joy, no matter what it is, whether it's sweeping the streets or being a nurse or being a, an astrophysicist, it doesn't really matter, because it's your intention as to why you're doing it. And that becomes right livelihood. Yeah? And in ordinary daily life, just washing the pots, you see, washing the pots, you know. I mean, that becomes a practice in itself. Right? To actually just put, to turn it into a mindfulness exercise. And then every time you wa then every time you wash the pots, you can see your mindfulness increasing, you see? And then you, you, you start looking for a job washing pots. Because you see it as such a wonderful practice. Right speech, you see. Uh, <clears throat> the Buddha talks about 
kindly speech, right? To make sure that when, when you're talking to somebody, it's always coming from some sort of heart of kindness. It's honest, right? And the third one, which I think is particularly important, that is at a suitable time, right? <laughs> that you don't, you don't put your foot in it, you know? That you're actually, that you're actually saying that, you, you might want to say something kindly, and you might want to say something honest, but it might not be the right time. You see, you have to be careful when you say things. So if you take those three of your three little guidelines, then you're, you're, you're careful in, in what you say, in what you speak, in what, what you speak. It's probably the hardest of all these train, training rules is right speech, because we're always talking, you know. So you can see that uh, every moment in our lives, from a spiritual point of view, offers this opportunity to bring awareness, to bring goodness, to bring virtue, and naturally, naturally, so you don't have to work at it, the joy arises. Okay? That, now that's, that's the positive bit. The negative side is, of course, that you have to also work with uh, stuff that comes up, the anxieties, the depressions and whatnot. And slowly, by finding this position of being able to bear with them, being patient with them, allowing them to manifest at the right time, yeah? so that you're no longer hijacked by your emotional states, they no longer govern your life. See, that's a liberation. And also, not getting that attitude of um, being against them, fighting them, being frustrated by them. See? Wanting them to go, that's always a, that's, you're immediately in conflict, you see. Huh? If you feel a little anxiety and you want it to go, you're in conflict with it. You're creating even more disturbance. So when we have these negative states, you know, to actually find the space and time to let them express themselves, see. And in so doing, you're allowing that turbulence to die out, but also developing an attitude of, not being affected by them so that you can carry on your daily life no matter what mental state that happens to arise yeah? and remember we were talking about it this morning that when something negative comes uh, you can always park it like a car you see which is not the same as suppressing right suppressing is you push it away with anger or with fear but just by putting it to the side and then putting your whole attention on what you're doing then, as it were, you're building up another mental state to the side of it, which is joyful, see? And then you find some time in the day or in the week where you can go back to this mental state and let it manifest, see? And that's how you, you sort of work with, with negative mental states. So from neg negative mental states, you're bearing them when you can so that they are they're dying out, yeah? And you're being skillful in the sense that you're not being governed by them, overtaken by them, by putting your attention, by, being, by training yourself to put your attention in what is positive and wholesome. And on the positive side, whenever you see something wholesome or where you want yourself to develop, you put your whole attention and effort into that area. See? So very slowly, just you move across from darkness to light. See? Easy, wheezy, peasy. And when we, when we fail, you see, when we go back to old habits, when you find yourself uh, going down again, you see. So at some point, you have to, you have to, you have to bump, you have to stop, you see. Yeah? 
and then you have to pick yourself up dust yourself off and start all over again that's it and frankly most of our spiritual lives is picking ourselves up dusting ourselves off and starting all over again <laughs> that's it it's very slowly resilience resilience you see uh, continual effort see and very slowly And that's, uh, that's, that's really basically uh, <clears throat> how we bring the Dharma into our lives. Yeah? So there's no, there's no mysticism uh, about Buddhist practice. It really is about um, developing the good heart, you know, letting go of the heart which is full of horror and misery and developing the good heart. And uh, as we're doing that, as we're doing that you see there's a natural there's a natural separation of this awareness this consciousness see there's a natural bringing there's a natural elevation a movement of this consciousness out of the psychophysical organism yeah? out of emotions out of the body out of mind meaning thoughts and images and as it pulls itself out, it comes to recognize its own true nature. See? And it's the, it's, the, it's the slow recognition of this consciousness, of this awareness, that is the spiritual part of your practice, the real spiritual part. Because this is what doesn't belong to the earth. It doesn't belong to nature. It's something other than. And as it, as it gathers its own inner understanding, you see, it now goes back into this psychophysical organism and into the world in order to spread its understanding. So when you're sitting in meditation, you're displacing your attention into an observation post. It's like a crow's nest on a ship. You know the bit where the sailor climbs up to see if he can see the land? So he's up there, you see. You've discovered this place of the of the of the one who knows, yeah, uh, the observer, the feeler. So this is a special place from which you can observe the body with its feelings, the heart with its emotional states, the mind with its thoughts and images, the process of desire, see, which is where the problem lies. Hmm? And from that state, you see, whether, whether we are aware of it or not, really recognizing it or not, this consciousness has been displaced. It's relocated somewhere. Huh? And in that relocation, it's discovering a new identity. So this identity is the observer, the feeler, the knower. Right? It's still false because there's still somebody there. It's not, it's, not the end, it's not the end product. But it's a place where we can observe the whole process as to how we create happiness or unhappiness for ourselves. See? And that, and then slowly but surely, as that becomes more and more obvious to us, then we'll want to stay there more. See? You want to stay in that peacefulness. And what we discover is that whatever happiness is, there's a difficult one later, whatever happiness is, real happiness, true, uh, unchanging, Everlasting happiness is not an emotion. See? So <laughs> that sort of discovery, you see, leads us to a different place. Now, does that mean that you therefore, does, does the Buddha not have a heart? 
you see? No, not at all. Because when that Buddha mind re-enters into the psychophysical organism, right, the human being, it then begins to act as a human being. So that the Buddha's asked, he says, when somebody comes to you, hears your teaching but does not respond, how do you feel? He says, no, it's all right. He says, is there karma? Is there, you know, I've done my bit so I'm, and, and it's up to them now. And they ask him, how do you feel when somebody does accept? He says, I feel joyful. Sympathetic joy. So there's, it's as though the heart is a, is a sort of resonance, see, to, um, to the mind, to, uh, to this consciousness. It's, it resonates. You see? So that's the spiritual part, you see. And when you connect the ordinary psychological daily action, the ethical part of our lives, with that process, then you see the connection that when we are coming into a situation, when we are acting from the point of delusion, misunderstanding, it manifests in unethical actions. And when we're coming from the point of uh, wisdom, it manifests in virtuous action. So you can't separate ethics from, from the spiritual life. The one goes together. Yeah? I mean, how would you feel if the Buddha was caught shoplifting? Terrible, wouldn't it? Shoplifting, stealing from a shop. It wouldn't be good, would it? You know, the Buddha being sort of carried out by police. You know, for shoplifting, for heaven's sake. I mean, murder, we can understand. But, you know, silly stuff. Shoplifting. See, it's, 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 it's petty, it's ridiculous, you see. But it doesn't work, does it? See? So, uh, complete virtue and complete enlightenment are one and the same thing. Right? The one is the, is the mirror of the other. So that's why when you take the refuges, you always take the precepts, because they're connected. You can't have the one without the other, you see. See, when I, when I started meditating, there was still the, um, the aftermath, really, of, um, uh, you know, of, of, the, of the hippie period and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I would meditate with people who would meditate really hard for six months. I mean, you know, sweat as a brow, I mean, really give themselves, you know. And then after that, it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You know what I mean? <laughs> and and they, they never got anywhere, you know? What to do? So, <laughs> so hopefully these days we've, gone, we've sort of gone beyond that a bit and recognized that there is a connection between, uh, you know, spiritual growth and, and our ethics, our, our moral lives, you see. So that's it really, the, the, uh, the beauty of having a little centre like this is it allows you to come here once a week to, you know, to uh, recharge your batteries, your spiritual batteries and then to make sure that in daily life <clears throat> you always have a right intention for everything you do and that you, <clears throat> even when you're rushed, you can still stop, <clears throat> you don't, even when you have to do something quickly, you, ne you needn't get into a rush. See, that, that's also a skillful thing to be able to do. <clears throat> and that you begin to understand the role of intention in, in developing yourself. And that, there, and that just by that, that action of coming to a centre, 
meditating uh, this vipassana, finding that position of the observer, doing it every morning so that you always re-establish that place and, hold, and know how to get back to it at any moment of the day. See, close a door, just stand there for a minute. That's it. You just stop. You got it. See? And always moving from that point, right? Making the right intention. And that's it. And just very slowly. The whole process works for you. Becomes a habit. Once it's a, a reinforced habit, even when you don't meditate for a day or a week, you see, then you still go back to it. Uh, there was a very famous um, Russian ballet dancer, Noriev, in the 70s. Some of you might have seen him. And he used to say, if I didn't practice for one day, it was okay. If I didn't practice two days, I felt it. If I didn't practice three days, everybody else did. Right? So, <laughs> so there you've got your standard, you see. You can miss your meditation for a day. The second day you'll feel it. And the third day everybody else will. So, <laughs> so it's, just, it's just, you know, getting yourself into that continuous... So I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. May you be liberated by your constant and ever energized practice from all suffering sooner rather than later. <laughs> Very good. So now, uh, what do we do now? Uh, <laughs> Got to get this, the strings. The long strings. <laughs> ah, yes, the long strings. Okay. Right, yes. So now, is this com somebody coming in? Just in time for the blessing. Wonderful. Is that door open? Is that? Ah, <laughs> she's shy. Look, you see. She doesn't want to be seen. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> You see, that's very interesting, isn't it? Because when you see, if like, if you're sitting on a train, there's a baby there, right, looking at you. <laughs> so you're going, and then, <laughs> huh? and then they look at, look at, and then suddenly, like, is someone else? Anything? <laughs> like, what's going on? You know? And then there comes this point where the baby actually sees that you're looking at them. See, at first it's just them looking at you. Mm -hmm. That's it, you see. Then suddenly you're looking at them. And you've got to hide. <laughs> Other people's eyes are like, ooh, they bore into them, yeah? It's funny, isn't it? Little children. The growth of consciousness. So, okay, so now we have to pass this string around. And as we do it, it's very bad karma if it touches the ground. I'll only say it once. <laughs> I'll only say it once. Yeah, no, you take it. Yeah, that's it. Just make sure you wrap it around. <clears throat> well, you have to, no, you want a bit more because you want to keep your hand down there. Just give it plenty. Give it plenty. <laughs> yeah, give it away. I don't, I don't want you to pull the jar over. Yeah, you're all right. <clears throat> so this, this, you see, is going into the water here. You see? And it goes round the Buddha and round the flowers and then it's going around everybody. Everybody has to piece the string, you see? So you're all connected so that when we do the chanting, uh, this water becomes entirely empowered by your kindness and love. You see? It starts to, bo it starts to boil. 
Doesn't matter how it goes, zigzag, it doesn't matter. Just just keep passing it around. It'll come up in a minute. It doesn't have to go around your head. You know, it doesn't have to do that. Uh, you could hang yourself. I don't want people to throttle. I don't want people to throttle themselves. Ah, yes. All around the back. What's the little girl called? What's the little girl called? Um, oh. Pascal? Pascal, that is Alma. Alma. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, oh, I just thought you've got to do the pouring, haven't you? Yeah, that's so it's all behind. Can we uh, just shift this a bit? Yeah. Let's see what I can do now. Actually, no, if you come, I'll tell you what, the best thing is for you to come here. That's it. For you to come here. That's the best. That's the best. Have you got enough string there? Yeah, I have enough string, no. How are we doing? Is it coming up this way again? Now, if you hold it there, you see. Oh, God, I can. You're going to hold it there. Eh? Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. Right. Now uh, <coughs> I'm going to uh, chant the discourse on loving kindness, and then afterwards um, uh, Linda will read it. Yeah. And yeah, in Dutch. And then while while I chant now. She's going to pour the water and remember it overflows, see? So this is an opportunity for you uh, mm. just to offer your goodwill. Uh, your, there are four classic blessings. May you be safe. May you be well. Uh, may you be happy. And may you live contented um, in harmony with the world. Mm. See? So it doesn't matter what, what blessing you use, but use it in order to uh, spread it out to yourself. To everybody here, to etc., and to this to this lovely little building. Okay. Karani angata kusalena yantam santang padanga bisameka sako jucha sujucha suacho cha samudu anatimani santu sako cha subharo cha pakicho cha salaukawuti. Santendrio cha nipako cha pagabo kulesu ananugido Najaku dan samachare kenchi yena winyu pare upawade yung Suki no wake mino hontu sabe sataba wantu suki tata Yeke chi pana butati tasawata wara wa anawase sa Digawa ye mahanta wa majima rasa kanu katula. Ditawa ye wa adita ye chadure wa santia widure. Butawa sambawezi wa sabesata bawantu sukitata. 
Na paro parang niku beta, na ti manya ta kata chinen kenchi. Viaro sana patiga sanya, nanya manya sadukan ichea. Mataya taniang putang, ayusai kaputang anurake. Ewampi sababu te sumana sambawa ye aparimanang. Metencha sabalokasming mana sambawa ye aparimanang. Udang adocha teriancha sampatanga weranga sapatang. Titancharan esino wa sayano wa yawatasa wigatamido. Eitan sating adite ya brahmangetangui harangi damahu. Ditinchan upagama sila wa dasanena sampano. Kame su venayagedang nahijatu gabaseyang punare tipi. Als je wijs bent en je wil een toestand van vrede bereiken, zou je als bestaanig. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.